Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Erber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. soup, the cauldron of story, has always been boiling, and to it have continually been added new bits, dainty and undainty. That is a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien's On Fairy Stories, and it's the, the basic idea behind it is that all of the major stories that we're familiar with uh, have been added to the collective human memory since probably the beginning of creation, and as part of the creative process, uh, we should be familiar with these stories and familiar with the, the pot of soup that they kind of come from, where all the flavors kind of blend together. And the longer, the older the story is, the longer they've been, it's been cooking in that pot. And that's why I'm taking the name Cauldron of Story and adding it to a new segment that uh, my wife and I are going to be doing together uh, for I Might Believe in Fairies. And this is going to be primarily Patreon-only uh, patron exclusive, whatever. It's going to be for patrons only, um, uh, except for this first episode. And we'll release episodes here and there just to kind of, you know, whet people's appetite. Uh, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to start by reading some of the stories in the fairy tales from the, the Brothers Grimm and looking at them from a sacramental perspective. Uh, I know that... Um, the Grimm brothers, they were uh, they were Protestant Christians, but they were very sacramental in their outlook, and they pull a lot from uh, Greek mythology, Norse mythology, scripture, and, and things like that. So, And I'll be joined by my wife, like I said, Rachel. Uh, Rachel's here too. Rachel, why don't you say something? Hello, I'm Rachel Erber. And um, you've been listening to my husband for like two two years now? Is it two? Yeah. One a year and a half? That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So um, I have the privilege and the honor of being a part of this as well. <laughs> um, I actually did go to school for um, for English. I have an English degree um, in creative writing, um, but I don't use it too much right now. So this is kind of a, a special thing that I get to start doing with my husband to um, kind of pick apart... Um, fairy tales and talk about them. Um, and I also have a theater background, so hopefully you will also enjoy my <laughs> attempts at different voices. <laughs> I'm, I, my, my kids certainly like them, so hopefully um, the audience will, will enjoy um, our, our slight dramatization of these, of these stories as well. Yeah, and so we're going to be reading... We're going to do a reading of uh, each of these stories. Not all of them. There's like 200 different Grimm's stories. But we'll pick some of the more interesting ones, some of the, some of the main ones. Um, and we'll do a reading of them. And Rachel and I will – Rachel's going to do a really good job. Um, and, <laughs> Here's hoping. And um, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> and then we'll have a, a discussion afterwards. So – uh, that's that's the basic structure of it, and be simple and fun. Yeah, and I've been wanting to do this for a while. It gives me a, a chance to get more familiar with both the more famous 
fairy tales and some of the more obscure ones that the Grimm's cataloged. And well, you know, once we kind of exhaust the, the Grimm's stories, all the ones we want to do from them, uh, then we might move on to there's Norwegian folk tales. There's all, all sorts of things that we could explore with this. And we're hoping to have this come out periodically, maybe once every two weeks or so. Uh, and then, like I said, we'll release the some we'll release some to the public, uh, maybe as as episodes of the show. Uh, but most of them will be behind a paywall. So that's uh, that's what we're going to do. And then the first episode today uh, is going to be the Frog Prince. It's the first story in the Grimm's Fairy Tale. So uh, please enjoy. Welcome to The Cauldron of Story, Episode 1, The Frog Prince. Long ago, when wishes often came true, there lived a king whose daughters were all handsome. But the youngest was so beautiful that the son himself, who has seen everything, was bemused every time he shone over her because of her beauty. Near the royal castle there was a great dark wood. And in the wood, under an old linden tree, was a well. And when the day was hot, the king's daughter used to go forth into the wood and sit by the brink of the cool well. And if the time seemed long, she would take out a golden ball and throw it up and catch it again. And this was her favorite pastime. Now it happened one day that the golden ball, instead of falling back into the maiden's little hand, which had sent it aloft, dropped to the ground near the edge of the well and rolled in. The king's daughter followed it with her eyes as it sank. But the well was deep, so deep that the bottom could not be seen. Then she began to weep, and she wept and wept as if she could never be comforted. And in the midst of her weeping, she heard a voice saying to her, What ails you, king's daughter? Your tears would melt a heart of stone. And when she looked to see where the voice came from, there was nothing but a frog stretching his thick, ugly head out of the water. Oh, is it you, old waddler? said she. I weep because my golden ball has fallen into the well. Never mind, do not weep, answered the frog. I can help you. But what will you give me if I fetch up your ball again? Whatever you like, dear frog, said she. Any of my clothes, my pearls and jewels, or even the golden crown that I wear. Your clothes, your pearls and jewels, and your golden crown are not for me, answered the frog. But... If you would love me and have me for your companion and playfellow and let me sit by you at table and eat from your plate and drink from your cup and sleep in your little bed, if you would promise me all this, then I would dive below the water and fetch you your golden ball again. Oh, yes, she answered. I will promise it all, whatever you want, if you will only get me my ball again. But she thought to herself, what nonsense he talks, as if he could do anything but sit in the water and croak with the other frogs, or could possibly be anyone's companion. But the frog, as soon as he heard her promise, drew his head under the water and sank down out of sight. But after a while he came to the surface again with the ball in his mouth, and he threw it on the grass. The king's daughter was overjoyed to see her pretty plaything again, and she caught it up and ran off with it. Stop! Stop! cried the frog. Take me up, too. I cannot run as fast as you. But it was of no use, for croak, croak after her as he might. She would not listen to him, but made haste home, and very soon forgot about the poor frog, who had to betake himself to his well again. 
The next day, when the king's daughter was sitting at table with the king and all the court, and eating from her golden plate, there came something pitter-patter up the marble stairs. And then there came a knocking at the door, and a voice crying, Youngest king's daughter, let me in. And she got up and ran to see who it could be. When she opened the door, there was the frog sitting outside. Then she shut the door hastily and went back to her seat, feeling very uneasy. The king noticed how quickly her heart was beating and said, My child, what are you afraid of? Is there a giant standing at the door ready to carry you away? Oh, no, answered she. No giant, but a horrid frog. And what does the frog want? asked the king. Oh, dear father, answered she, when I was sitting by the well yesterday and playing with my golden ball, it fell into the water, and while I was crying for loss of it, the frog came and got it again for me on the condition that I would let him be my companion. But I never thought that he could leave the water and come in after me. But now he is outside the door and he wants to come into me. And then they all heard him knocking at the second time and crying, Youngest king's daughter, open to me. By the well water, what promised you me? Youngest king's daughter, now open to me. That which thou hast promised must thou perform, said the king. So go now and let him in. So she went and opened the door, and the frog hopped in, following at her heels till she reached her chair. Then he stopped and cried, Lift me up to sit by you. But she delayed doing so, until the king ordered her, when once the frog was on the chair, he wanted to get on the table, and there he sat and said, Now push your golden plate a little nearer, so that we may eat together. And so she did, but everybody might see how unwilling she was, and the frog feasted heartily, but every morsel seemed to stick in her throat. I have had enough now, said the frog at last, and as I am tired, you must carry me to your room and make ready your silken bed, and we will lie down and go to sleep. Then the king's daughter began to weep, and was afraid of the cold frog, that nothing would satisfy him, but he must sleep in her pretty clean bed. Now the king grew angry with her, saying, That which thou hast promised in thy time of necessity must thou now perform. So she picked up the frog with her finger and thumb, carried him upstairs, and put him in a corner. And when she had laid down to sleep, he came creeping up, saying, I am tired and want to sleep as much as you. Take me up, or I will tell your father. Then she felt beside herself with rage, and picking him up, she threw him with all her strength against the wall, crying, Now will you be quiet, you horrid frog? But as he fell, he ceased to be a frog, and became all at once a prince, with beautiful, kind eyes. And it came to pass that with her father's consent, they became bride and bridegroom. And he told her how a wicked witch had bound him by her spells, and how no one but she alone could have released him, and that they two would go together to his father's kingdom. And there came to the door a carriage drawn by eight white horses, with white plumes on their heads, and with golden harness. And behind the carriage was standing faithful Henry, the servant of the young prince. Now faithful Henry had suffered such care and pain when his master was turned into a frog, that he had been obliged to wear three iron bands over his heart to keep it from breaking with trouble and anxiety. When the carriage started to take the prince to his kingdom, the faithful Henry had helped them both in, got up behind, and was full of joy at his master's deliverance. And when they had gone a part of the way, the prince heard a sound at the back of the carriage, as if something had broken, and he turned round and cried, Henry, the wheel must be breaking. But Henry answered, The wheel does not break, tis the band round my heart, that to lessen its ache, when I grieve for your sake, I bound round my heart. 
again and yet once again there was the same sound and the prince thought it must be the wheel breaking but it was the breaking of the other bands from faithful henry's heart because he was so relieved and happy we just read um the first story in the grimm's fairy tales um called the frog prince and it's also known as Iron Henry um, because of Faithful Henry and the Iron Bands mm. or his heart at the end. I don't end. think I knew that. Yeah, I just, I just found so that So then out. it has to mean something. It's significant. It's something more significant than just a weird thing that happens at the end. Right, yeah. It does. <laughs> the title actually would be. Right. Yeah. Um, and so these conversations will also be, they're not, they're not going to be an exhaustive look at every aspect of the story. They're just the two of us. Doing a little bit of research, a little bit before starting. Um, doing some research. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, just kind of, just, you know, the folklore behind certain things and, and um, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, this isn't meant to be like a, a scholarly look at the story or like tracing the the roots of it you know back through history and all that stuff I, i'm not really interested in, in that it's it's more like the, looking at the images and what the images tell us about the meaning uh in the story so um i guess the story plot summary. yeah i guess you know we just read it um and we're recording it on a different date so i kind of had to go through and review the like plot. six months later yeah like six <laughs> months later <laughs> we moved um and had a baby in that time so it was kind of this took it this project took a took a pause uh but hopefully now we can do one every every two weeks or so is kind of what we're going for so but so this story kind of opens up um there's a king and he's got three daughters, and um, the youngest is the most beautiful, and the you know, fairest, and even the sun itself, you know, is impressed by her beauty. Um, and Rachel, you and I were talking about how the youngest, the youngest sibling, um, is usually someone important. Uh, well, I mean, kind of, kind of not important. They're not really important. They're kind of at least in terms of the family, like they're the youngest. Well, usually kind of, in the story, they right. they play a significant role in the story being told. Right. Yes. Um, but like in terms of the family structure, the youngest is usually like the the stupid one, or like the lazy one, or like you know the naive one, or forgotten. Forgotten. Yeah, they're not the biggest or the most powerful. They're usually the the weakest, or maybe they're a fool. You know. Um, and I think in this case, the daughter is kind of a fool figure. Uh, maybe even worse than that. Um, and so there's a well. We can we can also get into more of the symbolism as we kind of come back after the yeah. summary. Yeah. So um so she's sitting she there's a well uh, under an old linden tree in a dark wood near the castle and when it's hot out the king's daughter uh would sit by the cool well and throw a golden ball in the air to pass the time. Um and then she drops the ball into the um into the well and it sinks to the bottom and then she's crying and a frog comes up and um, says that, you know, he can get the ball for her in exchange for, you know, the thing he names, you know, and she's like, oh, do you want clothes and jewels? And he's like, no, I want your love and companionship and playfellow, you know, which is not, not at all a weird thing to ask for. <laughs> um, and so, you know, she agreed, but she lied. Um, she was lying. And then the frog got her the ball back and she, they ran away. She, he, she ran away, uh, away from the frog and then the frog came to the castle next day, next day and demanded to be let in. Um, the king 
notices her heart beating quickly and asks if there's a giant at the door. And the daughter says, no, it's a frog. And he told, tells her what happened. Uh, or the, he, the, the, she, she told the king what happened. And then um, the king is like, well, you, well, what you promised, you got you to gotta do it. And so they let the frog in. The frog sat at the table, ate from her plate. And the frog wanted to go to bed with her. Um, and she obviously doesn't want that. And the king said, thou which... That which thou hast promised in thy time of necessity must thou now perform. And then she picked up the frog with her finger and thumb and carried it to her room. And she, uh, the frog wanted to go to bed with her. Um, and she didn't want that. And he's like, well, I'll tell your dad. And then she got really ticked off and threw the frog against the wall. He turned into a beautiful prince with kind eyes. Uh, with the king's consent, they were going to get married. Um, and then... Uh, it was revealed that uh, the Wicked Witch bound him with her spells, and only the youngest daughter could have released him. Um, and then when they're on their way to uh, his father's his father's kingdom, Faithful Henry, his servant, um, at the back of the carriage, had three bands around his heart to keep it from breaking from anxiety, because the prince was turned into a frog. And as each one was breaking, the prince thought that it must be uh, the wheel breaking. So... Um, that is basically the summary. It's very, it's a very short story. Um, it's a good one to start with cause it's only a, like three pages long, you know, with the il illustrations, it's about five pages, but, um, yeah. So did I miss anything about the summary? No, that's the whole story. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's like all of Grimm's stories. Um, they're kind of deceptively simple on the surface. I mean, it is a simple story. It's not very, it isn't very complicated, but the images that the Grimm brothers kind of weave in, um, make it a more interesting story. Well, in school, um, so just some background on me. Um, although my husband is the podcaster and, um, the literature enthusiast now, I actually did go to school for English. <laughs> Creative writing, in fact. I don't use it much now, um, but I have actually had some formal education on analyzing literature. It wasn't always the best since I did go <laughs> to a public university, <laughs> but, um, this I think you generally liked it. I did. I did have a lot of fun. I just wish that the the pieces that I had been um, focused on were a little bit more in the classic realm as opposed to whatever was new and weird at the time that the professors were interested in. Um, but I think that when we were writing, the biggest thing about the length was if you are going to make it short it's going to be a lot harder because you have to choose your words so carefully. Otherwise, you're wasting a story. If you chose to write something longer, then there could be a phrase or a paragraph that could have, you know, been gotten rid of. But it, it was okay because you had a, a longer story to tell. There, there was more. There was more in there. Um, but if you decided to write something short, then you really needed to prune it nice and tight and make sure that everything you had to say was was worth the reader's time. Mm -hmm. So, reading a shorter story, you have a lot of time to be able to kind of go over it and pick it apart and say, okay, everything in here was meant to be here, mm -hmm. or you know, if, if it had been longer, then more things may have been overlooked, but yeah. And with, um, with these stories in particular, I don't remember if I said this during this recording or not, but, um, 
the Grimm brothers were folklorists and um, I think philologists, which you know, studying language and um, that sort of thing. I think you said that. Yeah, um, and they were pulling from. So what they did was they they sent grad students around. They didn't go themselves. I don't think they sent grad students around and interviewed um, different aristocrats and 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 you know things people like that to get their stories, um, the folk tales and stuff, and then. They believed that they um, were these stories represented, or they had images and, and hints of a, like a primeval sort of religion, um, which is interesting. So, agree with them or not, you know that's kind of what they were working with, and what they viewed themselves doing as they were fleshing out these stories um, and incorporating their background of like Norse mythology, um, their interest in Greek mythology or classical mythology and um, scripture, stories in scripture and, and Christianity, they would um, notice things in the stories and kind of flesh them out to, um, they, they viewed them as restoring these stories to their, to try to capture their original meaning. So like, for example, um, the first set of images they give us in the story is a there's a well under an old linden tree in a dark wood so and that's where the girl likes to sit and just pass the time kind of idly passing the time throwing a ball back and forth so linden trees um they are i get i was just kind of researching this um and they're considered a sacred tree in in many many cultures um and so the ones that we're interested in would be like the germanic cultures um both pre and pre pre-christian and, and christian and um the uh norse um or sorry not norse um classical or greek mythology so in the greek mythology you have the story of um uh, philemon and bacchus uh, or ba bacchus um bacchus yeah i think that's how you pronounce it um you, they were uh, an elderly couple in um in a town that uh, Zeus and Hermes were visiting, and uh, they Zeus and Hermes wanted a place to stay. They wanted hospitality. It was a big thing in the, in the ancient, you know, for the ancient Greeks. Um, and nobody, everyone turned them away except for this old couple, um, Bacchus and Philemon. And um, so they let them stay the night, and they didn't have much, but they gave it to the to the gods basically. And um, and after the night was over. Um, Zeus and Hermes were like, well, the rest of this town, a bunch of wicked people, so we're gonna we're gonna destroy it. And uh, but you guys, for your reward, you know, we'll turn your house into a temple, and um, we will turn you into trees. And it's great, like, thanks, thanks. Um, and so Philemon became an oak, and Bacchus became, or ba ba Bacchus became, uh, I'm, I probably, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, became a linden tree, and their their branches intertwined. Um, never to be separated. So linden trees are kind of symbols of marital fidelity, love, fertility. Um, and there's an old German kind of folk, there's old German folklore about the linden tree that you can't lie underneath it. You know, you, when you're underneath it, you have to tell the truth. Um, and so you can see how with the, the king's daughter, um, she get her ball back, which is not a very, I mean, it's golden, right? So it's kind of expensive, but it's also a ball. So it's not very, it's kind of, what would you say? It's um, um, inconsequential, I guess. It's not a very important thing, you know. Um, it was to her. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, but she's just kind of pissing the day away, you know, just throwing a ball by a, by a pond. 
you know? Yes. So, um, and with, um, with a well, the well is also obviously the other significant part of the opening scene. And we were just discussing too, that a well can signify the meeting place for like unlikely people. Yeah. Um, and you, you mentioned because, uh, um, and, and yeah. obviously in the gospel, um, when Jesus meets the Samaritan women, I've heard other people talk about how, you know, this is probably one of the only places that different people of different nations would come together for a common purpose and to get water, just to get water. It's a basic need. And then well, water can be, um, it can signify life or death. It's, it's life giving, but it's dangerous as well. Well, and, uh, um, I just thought of this right now. So like the Samaritan woman, I think she was there during the day, which was very uncommon, right, for women. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had also, she was also like unfaithful, right, to like yeah. she had like seven husbands oh, or whatever. Oh, oh, and Jesus told her the truth about her as well, mm-hmm. which is not that connected because. <laughs> maybe, there, maybe there was <laughs> there a linden tree. There might not have been a linden tree. Maybe there, there was. Or maybe there was. <laughs> um, it was interesting. Yeah. So there's there's definitely yeah, this meeting, this area of like a, a meeting place um, and underneath the linden tree. So she's tossing the ball and it drops in the well and sinks to the bottom. She begins to cry and she's weeping. And the frog, so the frog comes up to her from the from the emerges from the from the well and says her tears would melt a heart of stone. And then, um, like I said, the, you know, this is exchange of services. So the frog will get the ball in exchange for she offers clothes and jewels, even the crown on her head she offers him. Um, so she's like willing to kind of trade all this away. For her ball, um, even her, like the symbol of her authority. Um, it's kind of like what, Jacob and Esau, right? Um, Mesopotamia. So. Well, kind of like a, like a mess of like, you know, trading your birthright for Mesopotamia. Yeah. But it's. Um, it seems very silly, but it meant so much to her that. Right, yeah. Like she's she's panicking because she lost her ball, and um, or just going to show the the foolishness of the youngest child as well. Right. Yeah. Yep. Like, why would you do that? But again, she's she's just a child, so. Yep. And the um, the frog will you know he'll get the ball in exchange for love, companionship, and a playfellow. He wants to sit at her table, eat from her plate, drink from her cup, and sleep in her bed. Um, and again, or. The kind of the sexual undertones will become a little bit clearer, you know. It's not just like, well, I mean, he's a frog, so it's, there's not any like physical stuff going on. It's but it's just it's, very uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's like, a, what's what's the word? Um, it's like alluding to, yeah, you know, uh, sexual consummation in a marriage. Whenever you know. anyone wants to come to bed with someone, whether they are a person or an animal or an object, even it's, it's always kind of sexual and uncomfortable to yes. hear that right. <laughs> in the story. Right. And the princess in her necessity, time of necessity agreed to the terms, but she lied under the, under the linden tree, which you're not supposed to do. Um, so, yeah, she got the ball back, you know, and uh, we kind of covered this already. So another thing, um, the king, while she is, you know, there's a knock at the door and uh, she goes to see who it is. And it's the frog and the frog's like, let me in. You promised me. And uh, she says no. And then her her dad, the king, notices her quick heartbeat. Um, and, you know, which is a weird thing to notice. 
<laughs> um, Possibly because he is supernatural. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> with with these stories, it's like... Usually, the, if there is a king in a story, he can not fully embody God, but often there are aspects of the king that would be like god yeah like god the father like he's the king is supposed to be like god the father it's always i always hesitate to be like oh like a one-to-one thing um um the see i don't know what i'm gonna say now (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) um so it's not a one-to-one thing like god like i don't i don't want to like reduce these stories to just like a basic allegorical one-to-one ratio, but typically the the king, um, the unnamed king, is is typically a, a god of the father. Like you can you could look at him as god of the father, um, and so he notices her quick heartbeat and asks if there's a giant at the door. Um, like as in you know is is there a something of consequence? Yeah, something a big emergency. Big. Yeah, like a, a giant here to take her away. Um, and the daughter she admits what what happened. She admitted what what happened, and then um said the frog wants to. And this is the words that those that the translator used. This is the so I should also say this is the Barnes and Noble translation of um of Grimm's. Um, I don't know if the translator, the translator should be listed on here somewhere, but, um, I would have not been able to find it on here. So I'm not entirely sure, but it's a Barnes and Noble edition. Um, so it says, do you want, the frog wants to come into her and in scripture that usually means, you know, um, the sexual act. So Again, it's not it's not as if the frog is literally going to have sex with her. It's it's more like it's alluding to the type of consummation, um, right? I mean, um, so yeah. so the frog wants communion with the youngest daughter. He wants to share a meal with her, eat from her plate, sit at her table, and then the, she, he wants the con- the full consummation to be like you know being in her bed with her. So like like marriage, um, and the king um, made her stick to her promise. Uh, what do what do you think of that? Is that is that fair? <laughs> well, she was under the linden tree, right? Well, I mean, and she lied, so it's, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it is it is very strange to read it as it is a story about a girl and a frog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But reading it, if if you are to, because we have had discussions as well of the frog, um, I'm sure you want to kind of talk about um, the Bestiary of Christ book. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. how it discusses um, the frog, the significance of the frog in literature, and how he is often a frog can often be a Christ-like yep. um, symbol in a story, and there are so many different pieces of the story that. Um, can be seen as Jesus being like the frog in, in even some very strange ways, but ways that work when you kind of go over it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I can, I can touch on that now. So like the frog, I have the page open here. So this is from the bestiary of Christ by Louis Chabanneux Lassay. I mm. think I 
said very French. <laughs> very French. <laughs> um, so the frog, um, so this ungraceful creature itself has been elevated to the dignity of a symbol of the resurrection. Um, so because the frog disappears in winter and reemerges in spring, a lot of cultures kind of linked it to resurrection. And the early Christians, they um, associated the frog with Christ specifically because of that, uh, so much so that they would, they would, they would have um, um, stone uh, or two, like lamps or, or stones with frogs carved on them with a cross on it as well. Um, unlike the toads, the toads are usually symbols of lust and um, sort of like demonic lust. Um, and they, they had other more colorful <laughs> sculptures and paintings with frogs, or sorry, with toads doing um, lewd things. But so um, yeah, yeah, it's really strange. <laughs> but um, so the frog, because of its association with transformation as well from a tadpole to uh, a full-grown frog, it has to also do with... Um, with resurrection as well, and the dual nature of the frog too, being both a land animal and an uh, aquatic animal, um, has kind of this dual nature to it, which also is a, um, a symbol of Christ. Um, Christ's two natures. And Christ's two, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christ, human and divine natures. Um, and what Rachel was saying earlier about the well being a meeting place of. Um, you know, uh, of, of different, of, of difference, basically. Like um, the frog, it's very natural for a frog to emerge from a well because they're very at home in the water and the frog can leave the water too. So um, her meeting this, this very strange frog, uh, it's appropriate at the well. Um, and then, so the, the king, you know, seemingly very harshly wants basically to, to, for her to take the frog into her room Um and put her and then go to bed with the frog, right? Um, and so she, this is very interesting. So she picks up the frog with her finger and thumb and carried it to her room and put it in the corner far away from the bed. So in the Catholic Mass, um, when the priest is holding up the consecrated host, so that's the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, um, he's using his forefinger and his thumb. They're called the canonical digits to hold the, the Eucharist, basically. And um, she picked up the frog with her finger and thumb, seemingly as like an act of, what, disgust? Yeah, yeah, just to try to touch. I mean, just from a story standpoint, it's just you're trying to touch him as little as possible mm -hmm. <laughs> because mm -hmm. he disgusts you. Right, yeah. And so that's kind of this ironic sort of, um, this ironic sort of, holding of the frog like the Eucharist. So it's like this kind of um, reverse Eucharist uh, and reverse mass with the, the, the woman being sort of the priest in this instance. Um, and, but it, uh, like this act of kind of disgust carrying, carrying the frog up the stairs. And Rachel, why don't you, earlier today we were talking about this um, and I, I was confused by, the fact that she threw the frog out of rage at the wall, and that's what transformed him into a prince. Well, because we were saying, too, and so in other versions of the frog prince, the princess and the frog, that sort of story is usually, it's obviously a kiss. Like, that's what 
comes to mind the most when you hear about a princess and a frog or, you know, just this story in general, you imagine, oh, okay, so someone is a frog and the other person has to kiss them. And then, you know, the whole story is, yes, obviously it's about being able to look past the weirdness of kissing a frog, being able to see the inner beauty and having that inner beauty then come out after the act of love of kissing someone. Um, but here we were kind of talking about, okay, well, this is kind of the opposite of that. It is not love. It is violence and anger <laughs> um, that makes him turn back into a person again, back into a prince. Um, but I was kind of trying to look at it from another perspective instead of just looking at it from the girl's perspective, kind of turning and seeing it how um, from the frog's perspective. And then we sort of both came to the realization um, that if we are talking about the frog as a Christ-like figure, what did Christ have to do to save, well, I mean, to, to save us, uh, he had to die. And so as Erin was saying, you know, so, someone throwing a frog like that, that hard, angrily at a wall would probably have killed the frog. So in that moment when he died, he was also resurrected as as his um intended form so yeah and the fact that how we know the princess and the frog story um is that you have to kiss the the frog and then he'll turn into a prince so you basically have to accept accept the inner beauty of of what the creature you know um and what rachel said this is like the opposite of that <laughs> like it's like she rejected him. You know, she rejected him so much that he, she threw him at the wall, um, which is, I don't know if, if like, I don't know how, how we got from that, the story to needing to kiss the frog to turn him back into a prince. I don't know how that came about, if that was something, like if there's other traditions that have that in there, I don't, I don't know, but, um, or if it's a modern, modern thing that like you need to embrace you know, they have inner beauty and you need to embrace them for who they are and all that stuff. You need it's... to accept them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Ugliness. I don't know if that's what it is, but it, it's, it kind of strikes that note a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are other explanations of the other version because it's, it's just a little too different, I think, to be like, oh, we're just going to do the exact opposite or we're going to make up our own thing. Right. But, right. Yeah. I don't know. So um, you can really look at the girl as... Um, both an individual um, that needs to be saved. Um, or you can also, I think, just thinking about it right now, look at the girl as the church as well, because Jesus is wed to the church. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also thinking too, just a little bit ago, um, as we, I guess, as we started this discussion about how, um, the girl is the youngest daughter and the emphasis is put on that and how um, Jesus tells us that we need to be young. We need to be like little children in order to receive um, his teachings and to be saved ultimately as well. So yeah, just some really cool parallels. Yeah. The, the, the parallels, the different scripture, stories and, and other things are it's, it's very you know very interesting and um so i think the last 
thing we'll probably want to talk about is what the heck to do with faithful Henry. My gosh, I wish. I wish I knew what to do with him. <laughs> so he shows up at the end, um, you know, after they're betrothed, um, and after he reveals that a wicked witch bound the prince with her spells, and only the youngest daughter could release him. Um, you know, he's, he's a prince now, and, and he's in the carriage, and faithful Henry helps him both into the carriage, and he's standing at the back, and Henry is so overjoyed that his, so he put three iron bands over his heart to keep it from breaking um, from sorrow and anxiety because of the, the prince was turned into a frog. And so now the joy is, is snapping those bands. And every time a band breaks, uh, the prince thought it must be the wheel breaking. And so he's like, Henry, you got to fix the wheel. It's breaking. And, and uh, Henry says, no, it's, it's, I think he says in his heart, you know, this is, the bands are on my heartbreaking and not, not the wheel. So, but so he, he kind of just shows up at the end, like out of nowhere, you know, he's <laughs> like, um, and he's the only one who's given a name, which is odd too. Cause everybody else is either the, the frog, prince, the girl, the, yeah, the yeah, daughter, the witch. Yeah. The, so all of these general names. So Henry, um, I mean, Henry must mean something. I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna look at him now. I didn't even think to do this before. Um, but uh, house ruler. So apparently, and it's a it's German for house ruler. Um, uh, yeah, home and ruler. Um, I don't know. It's it's Latin. What's Latin? Oops. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's so uh, it's that's something we I I haven't been able to figure out. Um, it's just yeah, ruler of the house. So, but he's the only one given a proper name. So I. That must be important too, but he he shows up very like abruptly at the end and um and but I kind I think I have an idea about when the prince says it must be the wheel breaking you know the wheel um could be referring to you know obviously the the spokes to the wheel of the carriage but like it's kind of like the the wheel of uh this the never ending cyclical nature of like how pagan, a lot of pagan cultures viewed the the cosmos as this eternal renewal and breakdown and forever like never ending and so when christ when christ with his resurrection he kind of shattered that he broke the wheel you know it's another like i think saint catherine of alexandria um was she tortured on the wheel you know that yes so the wheel broke right um they, they couldn't use it to torture her or they tried to torture her but it it was broke every time they brought it near her um all the spikes fell off and it would it wouldn't work um and so the wheel is kind of this cyclical never-ending um birth and death and birth and death and christ breaks that um right but the wheels weren't breaking right it was the it was the bands but the, i don't know the, the bands are on the heart bands are kind of they're circular right they're kind of like mm -hmm. a wheel right? yeah. and i'm just thinking out loud like right now mm -hmm. i don't this, this this story is so it's so confused, not not confusing, but it's just there's so much packed into this <laughs> that it's like it's deceptive. It's yeah, like okay, there are three bands are on this hard three. Three is a, a biblical number, obviously. Yeah. You three know. days, Jesus rose after three days. Yeah, yep, the three persons, three of the Trinity, three nails. Three, yeah, exactly. Three nails. Yep, um, that might be something. And he he put it over his own heart. He bound his own heart with these bands to keep it from breaking. And now they're bursting with joy, and so. Like Henry is in some sense freed from his sorrow and grief um, because of the rescue of the prince, and so 
because bands are circular, I think it has to do with the wheel somehow um, and how like um, and the eternal birth and death is, is ended, you know. Um, so that's pretty much <laughs> as, as we're kind of talking, I'm like, OK, that, that might that might work. Um, I still think that there's something more, especially with him being named. Like, is he supposed to be the every man in this story since he has? Well, usually that's someone who doesn't have a name right yeah yeah yeah, but but since he's the only one that is actually named like i don't i don't know but hey this is a podcast right so people are presumably listening (laughs) um so how would you how would you like to be reached out to if someone has an idea because i would be very interested to hear someone else's yeah if if anybody has any thoughts on that particular subject and on anything honestly really yeah so um you could message me on facebook at aaron erber um or uh, on Patreon, you know, you can shoot me a, a question or you can shoot me a, any comments or thoughts uh, about the story. Um, leave a, you can leave a comment, you know, on the Patreon page. Uh, we'll have a link. We'll have a link in the show notes. Because really, this is just genuinely fun. And yeah. while it is very satisfying to come to conclusions yourself, it is also really great to hear from other people what they think about stories and symbolism, too. Right, right. Oh, and um, yeah, that... Uh, so just to kind of wrap up, the frog um, was thrown at the wall, turned into a prince as a symbol of sacrifice. Um, death, the frog um, bringing life out of death, so resurrecting and becoming in his new resurrected body in the form of the prince um, in this sort of funhouse mirror um, kind of mass. <laughs> you know, so it's this story, I love. I love the Frog Prince. I love this this grim fairy tale because it is so jarring, um, especially people who are used to. I mean, I, the the Disney movie. Um, oh, we love the Disney movie, uh, The Princess and the Frog. It's a very good movie. It actually is a very good movie, and there's a lot of deep symbolism in that movie too about um, Christianity and, and and stuff like that too. And it's a very good movie. But like you know, it's the same kind of trouble if you gotta kiss the frog and but she actually becomes a frog, right? So it's Yeah, so it's also kind of through inverted the kiss. as well. Right. And um I didn't I didn't make this up, you know, I didn't come up with this, but uh there's a presentation that I just went to um by Eleanor Burke Nicholson and Karen Ulo. Um they're talking about how love is transformative. And the pagan myths and the fairy tales that we're used to are all um, yearning for someone to come and submit themselves to dismemberment and torture and burial and um, resurrection to 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 fix the world, fix what's broken in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, this fits that. Right. So um, this fits like the frog, the frog being killed um, and reviled. And um, turning into, and that that being the catalyst for transformation, right? So, um, both him physically and then the morally, the the girl. So, that's pretty much all I have. Um, this was a lot of fun, and so we'll we'll be doing this hopefully every two weeks or so. We'll we'll do another grim story, and we when we exhaust what we want to with those, um, we'll move on to other folk tales that we're not as familiar with. So. Um, that's pretty much it. Do you have any final thoughts, Rachel? Um, no, this was, this was fun. Hopefully everyone listening gets something good out of it, or at least an entertaining 
half an hour. <laughs> um, and yeah, if I guess just it's not my podcast, but if anyone has a favorite Grimm's fairy tale that they would like to hear perhaps before other fairy tales that we do, um, let us know and I will try my my voice at different characters. So yeah. Yep. And maybe Aaron can act too. It'll be fun. We can be weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll try my best. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon. Bye.